When we come to our sermon text this morning in Genesis 18, um, we are go- I have the whole passage printed for you in your worship folder. We're going to look at the whole chapter, some big themes in it, but it is a long chapter. And so I wanted you to have the whole thing in front of you so that you can see it, but I'm just going to pick up and read from verse 19 and go through, sorry, verse 9 and go through the end of the chapter just to try to, since it's so long, to help us stay with it um, and pay attention to what we have here. So this is Genesis 18. Uh, I'll start reading in verse 9. This is God's word. They said to him, I'm sorry. I'm doing this because I need to tell you what is happening so you don't um, pick up in the middle of the narrative. Um, Abraham is in his tent in the first few verses, and God, through with, with or through his messengers, has shown up to dine with him, and Abraham extends them hospitality, and they are sitting around eating a meal together, and that's where we pick up here, verse 9. All right? So they... God and his angels said to him, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went down to Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it for lack of forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. 
And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come to this chapter in Genesis 18, one of the things that Will has been proposing to us uh, as we have undertaken the study of Genesis, um, as we are taking a break from looking at Romans and we go back and forth between Romans and Genesis, is that we often think of the gospel as a New Testament idea. Gospel just meaning the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's easy to think about that in terms of the New Testament because Jesus doesn't explicitly come on the scene until the New Testament. But when we actually dig into the New Testament, it says, like in Galatians 3.8, that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And specifically in reference to Abraham being a blessing to all nations through his line and through his family. And so really at its core, as the New Testament is grappling and explaining the work of Jesus, they're actually doing it through the Old Testament. And when we move back into Romans, we're going to see that Abraham's going to come up and Adam's going to come back again. And they're explaining um, what this good news means through what happened in the Old Testament. So as we come to this chapter, that this is actually a story about the gospel. This is a story that leads to and finds its meaning only in Jesus. And so this is actually a good news story in itself. One of the things that is complicated, but that I really like about the Old Testament, is that it is a mess. It is no fairy tale. It is not a story that just goes from good news to good news to good news to Jesus. It is a story that is full of all of the kind of life pains we experience, the kind of questions, the kind of doubts, um, the kind of uh, grappling with God, the kind of heartache that we experience. And it is a mess the whole way through. And what we see here is we see a lot of hardship in this chapter in the midst of God's people. And particularly, what we see here is family turbulence is what, how I've been thinking about this. And this is a family story. It has to do with an heir. As these visitors come and they're talking to Abraham and Sarah, promising that there will be a son, an heir that is going to turn into a people, through which that God will bless all nations. It is about educating children. Um, And it is about, if you'll notice in verse 19, as God is telling Abraham why he chosen him, this word he says for choosing is very particular. It's not just a dispassionate choosing, like you there, you go and do this. But it is a very intimate word. Like, I, so I have known Abraham. God has taken Abraham into himself. He's bound Abraham's destiny with his own destiny in the choosing. So this is a very relational and family-oriented passage as a whole that um, has to do with this one particular family in which there is turbulence. The central command of this is that God is telling Abraham to follow the way of the Lord, to adapt to a new way of doing things in a new family. 
And I don't know if you've ever experienced, if you have come into a new family or you may have gotten married or you may have adopted a kid or you may have moved jobs, you moved into a different circle, there is turbulence when families get together and the way of doing things is different. Laura and I were just thinking about this week as we were kind of uh, reminiscing about when we first got married and what that was like meshing our two families together. And it was not without turbulence in the beginning. In particular, Lauren came over to hang out with my family and she remembered sitting on the couch shortly after meeting my parents and siblings and looking around and nobody was speaking. It was quiet. Somebody was reading, somebody was watching TV, somebody was knitting, all just sitting around in the living room and it is quiet. And her first thought is, Somebody is not happy here with somebody. Like, there has got to be tension in this room for everybody to be sitting there and not talking. But as it turns out, that's just the way that we are in our peculiarities. That one of the ways that we enjoy each other is just to sit and to be together, and there's no social pressure. If you don't have anything to say, you don't say it. We're comfortable with each other. You can take a nap. You can do whatever you want to. We're all just in the same space. But it is a very different way of doing things. And the same goes the other way around. Remember, we were laughing this week about a time when, after we first got married and I went to hang out with her family, we took a long car trip in her dad's tiny little pickup truck. So we're all crammed in the same space, and there's pretty much conversation going on constantly for like 10 hours. Filled with when it lulls, her dad singing Old Man River to himself just to make sure that there's not enough quiet. There's, there's not quiet. And then we got to the hotel, somebody uses my pillow, I guess because it's just there. And then somebody accidentally uses my toothbrush, I guess because it's there as well. <laughs> her family is wonderful, they have a different way of doing things. <laughs> And there's turbulence when you put two families together who have different ways of doing things. It is hard to adapt to a new way. And what I want to propose here is that Abraham, this is a passage where Abraham is being educated into a new way. He has been brought into a new family where the way of operating is different, where God's behavior is mysterious And it is not without turbulence along the way. So we want to go through here and just look at how Abraham is being educated in this new way. And I think that's what God wants for us as well. As we are Abraham's children to teach us his way so that we would listen to him here that we also might learn. And we're going to do it by just the forecast forward. First we're going to look at God's calling That's what is the way that he has called how Abraham to be, what is God's character, and then what is God's conclusion to the whole story. That's where we're going. So let's turn first to God's character. And I'm going to talk about the first verses, especially with Sarah here, in a little bit, but I want to skip down into verses particularly 17 through 19 where Abraham is walking with God, and God, in speaking to himself, actually in a very 
particular and profound way, he says explicitly what Abraham and his family is called to do. This is the calling, this is the way um, of the Lord that God's people, all who are descended by Abraham by faith, how they're supposed to be. And let's look at that. So they're going, and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. And so we see here, this is, there is a lot. We could spend an entire sermon on just all the phrases in this verse. That he keeps having these phrases that are tacking on that are really loaded. But I just want to draw your attention here that there is a purpose to what Abraham's being chosen or brought into God's family. And that is to bless all nations by doing and teaching righteousness and justice. There's a purpose to it. There's a calling. Abraham being chosen and called by God to be close to him and in relationship with him, it is not just, that's not the end of the story. It's not just for Abraham's own sake. He's not just saved out of whatever situation he's in. He's brought into a new family that has a particular outward calling of doing righteousness and justice. And what does this mean? Righteousness, if we think about it, righteousness means that things are operating rightly. That they're operating according to design, how they're intended, so that it works best. And justice just simply means that things that are not right are made right. That justice is served. That that what has gone out of line, what has gone out of um, the way it's intended to function, has been intervened. And has been flipped so that it is functioning in a righteous way again. But this is a very important thing for us um, to pay attention to here with Abraham. Because even for us who are called to be Abraham's children by faith. Is that the being saved part is not just a salvation from what is bad. But it is a salvation from God's judgment and from the, um, the fall and the curse. And every aspect of creation that is broken. But it is not just to be in isolation and to just sit with that, but it comes with a purpose. It is a purpose of seeking the rightness and the justice of others outside of it. So that through the work, that there is actually blessing through the people of God, not just for themselves, but for all nations. There is a call, there is a character, you might say an ethic, that is in the purpose of being part of the people of God. But what does that look like? I want to notice something else here. That the things that God is calling Abraham to do, of exercising righteousness and justice, these commands don't come out of nowhere. And they are actually what God is in the business of doing himself right there. And look at this. Um, If we go on at the end, then the Lord said... He's saying these things to Abraham because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. This word for outcry is a particular word that it it is communicating an idea of social 
injustice or instability. It's used, if we did a survey of it through the whole Old Testament, it is the same word that's used in Israel when they were under oppression in Egypt and they were crying out for deliverance. It is the, it is the word used in Deuteronomy of a woman who is being attacked and who's crying out for help um, from her oppressor. Is if we, that this has a very potent meaning that because of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, that righteousness is not taking place, that the way that God designed the, earth, the world to operate is not working that way, and in particular in a way that is unjust. If we were to survey what this looks like, as even the prophets refer to Sodom and Gomorrah, it has to do with things like arrogance, like of some living in prosperity while having a blind eye towards those who have nothing, of working the social situation to benefit some and the others. And so there's an extreme case of the haves and the have-nots in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what God does is that God hears the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah and He moves. He comes down, He pays attention to it, and He moves in order to bring justice, in order to set the situation right again. So what we have here is a command to Abraham to do righteousness and justice wherever it may be found. But what the command is, is a mirroring of what God is doing himself. He is calling Abraham to imitate, and all of Abraham's children after him, to imitate the work of God by doing righteousness and justice. And this takes us all the way back to the very beginning of this whole biblical story, even in Genesis chapter 1. And that God's purpose in even creating things was that there would be order, that there would be flourishing. He puts a man and a woman in the garden and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. And as the fall happened and as things went awry, he is calling a new people who is to enter into that situation, not to go away from it, but to continue the same theme and the same mandate of imitating God's labors, of joining with him to bring human flourishing, to bring creational flourishing, to bring flourishing of righteousness and justice wherever it may be found. This is the calling of God's people is to imitate the work of God. To illustrate this, again, like we were on vacation last week and there was one point we were all sitting out on my back driveway and we were grilling hamburgers and everybody had a drink, like in a can, um, and most of us had it in a koozie. And the kids, they all had theirs, we're all sitting around and we're enjoying cooking out together. But Emmeth, my youngest, who is just a little kid, uh, he had his little LaCroix, he's really into LaCroix these days. And he looked around and noticed his dad has a koozie on his can. So he wants a koozie on his can. So he gets up. He doesn't even know what they're for. He doesn't know the difference between a cold drink and a warm drink. But he gets up. He climbs all the way in the house very creatively. He pulls out the drawer. He knows where they are. And he pulled out a koozie and came down and put his can in the koozie so that he could be like the other ones. Why did he do this? Did he understand the ins and outs? Absolutely not. But he wanted to do what his daddy does. He wanted to imitate his dad. I want a koozie because that is what my daddy does. This is kind of the image 
of this calling here with Abraham. It is a calling to seek the good of those outward, not just ourselves, but in a way that is actually imitating the way of the Lord. What does that mean for us? We could unpack righteousness and justice and what this means in a lot of ways. We might think about them in big, broad um, terms, like maybe this means activism or maybe this means... um, really intervening in dramatic ways, and it might. Um, it might mean evangelism, and it might. But it is not limited to just that, because God's work is not limited to just that. This, if we're talking about God's creation ordered rightly, and intervening to set right what is wrong, the way that God would do, it is very simple and very mundane. Like even if you can, let's think about the workplace. As you're... Um, if we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the big ills was unjust work practices. That money was being twisted so that it went to some and not to others. It wasn't fair. It was using uh, abilities to actually be, get more out of others who were helpless. So even the way, even in our jobs, however we just operate in a way that is fair to all parties is a pursuing of righteousness and justice. Even in small ways, Like refilling the copying machine when you know that it is empty so the next person after you doesn't have to do it. This is a way of establishing and working to an order that proclaims the way of the Lord. I mean, we can go in home, you know, with your spouse. I mean, I have to ask myself all that. Lauren spends so much time with the kids. Am I taking my time to use her in order that I can, you know, have more free time? You know, are we trying to get as much out of them what they can do just for us, or are we doing it the other way around? Are we making sure they get a break when they need a break? That is pursuing righteousness and justice. Listening well to friends. That is a pursuing of righteousness and justice. It is a calling that extends to all areas of life. That is a very high calling. And I think we can just ask ourselves these two questions. Is wherever we might find ourselves, how did God design this to function? And how can I position myself to intervene for the sake of others, not just me? That is the calling of Abraham and that is the calling of all of his children. Uh, Let's briefly move on. If once we look at that and we can say that's great, that's the calling, but... When, it, when we get that down into real life, it is not quite so simple as that. That sounds a little bit idealistic, like we just do it and it works and everything is roses. But I think one of the problems that Abraham is gra- grappling with in this story is not just the what he is called to do, but is the who question. Now, I am being called to do this by God who is doing things himself that are a little bit confusing. Like there's justice on the one hand, but there's also waiting on the other hand. Like he's promising us this child and he's not giving it. And he's telling me to do righteousness and justice. However, when Abraham is confronted with God's action of bringing justice to Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't seem very just. It seems like what he is about to do is actually going to be harsh as a disciplinarian um, in a way that is not fair. 
And so I want us to grapple here as well with what is the character of God who's actually calling his people to do this. And there's just two, there are two ways here. First, let's look at Sarah. I think what we're going to find in both Sarah's story and Abraham's story is that it is very difficult to trust a God who doesn't do what we think he should do, like with Sarah, or who does things that we don't think he should do, which is the case with Abraham. But God is using both of these situations to make one very central point to Abraham as he is instructing him in how to instruct his own children. And that is God is far more full of grace than even Abraham realizes. Let's look at Sarah. So he's promising Sarah this child, but she's been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for an Abraham. They're getting all these instructions about, you know, the promises through the chapters of Genesis about that they're going to have this big family that's going to bless the earth, and God is not giving it. And Sarah wonders, she looks at her own life, and she's old. And Abraham's old. Which, like, we might can say that Sarah thinks, you just don't get it. Like, too much life has happened in order for this to actually take place. There's too much water under the bridge. My body can't do that anymore. And so she doubts. She's like, I'm not sure that can happen. I really don't think it can. I think it's too late. And she's both afraid and she doubts when the promise is given to her directly. But interestingly enough, I went back and forth just wondering why is this phrase in here, verse 15. But the messengers were very particular to Sarah to make sure she knew that she denied it, that she did not believe and she did laugh. That struck you as odd. That's just this weird interchange that goes there at the end that seems kind of abrupt. But I think what is happening here is that the child that God has promised is going to be named Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? But it means laughter. And so even though Sarah is not believing what God has promised that he is going to do, rather than kick her to the side and replace her with somebody else, he makes sure very clearly that she understands that God has made a promise and she doesn't believe that it's going to happen. So that a little while later, he is going to turn her laughter she is going to turn her doubt into laughter, flip the whole situation upside down. And that is in facing Sarah's doubt that God displays to her the mercy that he has for this woman. I think this is, this is a wonderful picture of God's relationship with his people that is extended in such mercy. And I think the same is the case with Abraham. Look down at this at the very end of the passage where Abraham comes before God. He's walking with God, and God is telling him to do righteousness and justice, that he's about to intervene on behalf of the ones crying out around Sodom and Gomorrah. But he knows that God is about to do something that is a little bit questionable, and that God hears this outcry, and he is about to pour out a very high level of judgment on this city. In some ways, he knows that God is, at least he anticipates that God is about to wipe this people out. And that causes problems for Abraham. And he wonders, is God going to do what is right? 
Is he really so bent on getting rid of these wicked that he is going to just sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And I wonder if you've ever struggled with this with God, about the things that he does, particularly his judgment. That maybe we picture God as vindictive, that he is bent on discipline, he is bent on eradicating sin and evil wherever it may be, and that is just the main thing he focuses his attention on. Maybe his final judgment, that these things are very, very difficult to grapple our minds around, that they're fair. And Abraham is the exact same. So Abraham goes to God and he says, he, try, he starts to make a bargain with him. He says, I don't, I'm not sure this is fair, that you are going to destroy the city, because what if there are righteous people there? But in the middle of Abraham's struggle and bringing, coming to God with his struggle, what God shows him is something that's very surprising. And that is Abraham starts to bargain like he's going to make a deal with God that is going to be more righteous than what God is going to do. But what does God do? He doesn't enter into a bargain with Abraham. Instead, every step of the way, he actually moves backwards than what you would expect from making a deal. Abraham says 50 people, and God says, okay. Abraham says 45 people, and God says, okay. And you can almost feel in this narrative that like Abraham is getting more and more thoughtful as this goes down. Like, who is this God that I'm dealing with? Who is he? And in a very dramatic way, God is proving and educating Abraham that he is far more gracious in his intentions than Abraham thinks. Abraham thinks he's more righteous than God. And God invites that in. And he turns his opinion upside down and shows God his own character. The God who is calling Abraham and his people to act and to enter into the world, though he is often confusing, is a God who is abundant in mercy. His, desi- his goal is not just vindication, but it is a wonderful display of working both justice and extending mercy of letting those go that even don't deserve it. That's the character of God. God's character is full of mercy. And that brings us to the end. That brings us to the end of the narrative. But I don't think that brings us to the end of our questions. Um, and this is a story that keeps going. That it is not, it doesn't end with here. God's story with his people. And that it has a lot of ups and downs. There are lots of questions dangling here. Um, that why God does what he does. Why does he make Sarah wait? Why does he, um, even his judgment, like is, is he going to do what's fair? He's promised that he's merciful, but we're not told what that means. Um, we're like, you know, we're invited to think if he only goes down to one, is he going to do that? But then we're wondering, like, what, but is this even just in the first place? Like, is he just going to allow this oppression to keep happening um, in, in order to spare just a few? Is that right? This is a story that is just full of loose ends. And I wonder with us, even in our own lives, do we feel like the story of God in the walk is a story that is full of loose ends?
There are promises that don't come about. There are things we're told in the Bible that makes us very uncomfortable with who God is. And life is a mess. And we're kind of left with this sense is what is the end of this story? Is this worth sticking it out with this family? Or is this just turbulence that comes with God's way and our way? Is that too much? Like, can I, can I even handle this? Can I keep sticking it out with God in the middle of all this confusion when I just don't know what he's doing? And the answer here is here, but it is an answer that is leading us somewhere else. And the conclusion, when we're asking, is this the family that I really want to be in, and putting up with all of this stuff is found in God's action. It's the last point, God's conclusion. The conclusion of this story is not in the people, it is not in their ability, and it is not in what they do, but it's fully in what God is doing. And what's this? God acts here in ways in the story, and that He, like with Sarah, if we follow the story out, that He really does intervene. He, in a miraculous way, He acts and He provides Sarah with a baby. But with her, it's just a baby, and life goes on after Him. It goes more ups and more downs. And then we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, and God intervenes in small ways with them, and that He does act. He rids this, this place of oppression and injustice. But the world goes on and it changes. So it's like one little window of God's action here in history. And even when we look at Lot, if we follow the story to chapter 19, Abraham saves Lot. I mean, Abraham, God saves Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not that righteous. Like things go south for him in a hurry. So we get these little windows of God acting and God doing something, but it is not just the action in this story, but it is the actions that these are leading to. And these actions in this this story are actually shadows. They're leading us somewhere else to show what the whole story is about, is that why this people of God is important, and why, what is the great benefit of being part of this people, and that answer can only be found in Jesus. Because with Sarah, it wasn't just about giving her a baby. But it was about something much more. And that through giving her a baby, God creates, in all of its ups and downs, a line of people that is leading to God himself in the flesh being given to humanity. It was about something else entirely, something so much more than what Sarah was asking for. And even with God executing justice and mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not just about Sodom and Gomorrah. But God's justice and mercy finds its full expression, not just there, but when God sends His own Son and exercises both on the cross, where He is fully just and fully merciful at the same time. Jesus becomes the ultimate judge. Jesus is how God moved, how He came down from heaven He heard the cries and he moved. He didn't stay, but he took action on his people's behalf. Jesus is the only one righteous. There's no one righteous in Sodom. Regardless, and as we find out in the whole story of God's people, there's no one righteous in God's people either. But Jesus is the one righteous where God would spare his entire 
people from every nation just because of the one man. Jesus is the perfect intercessor who pleads on behalf of the wicked before God, not just as like Abraham, but as a member of the Trinity in itself. It is Jesus how God would bless all nations. He would bring all nations and connect them to the flourishing that is in Him. Because of this, this is a story that is leading to a place where Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The story of God is a story that is leading towards Jesus. And it is because of Jesus that the work of the people of God, we can say that this work is not in vain. Even when my life is a mess, and my life is inconsistent with the righteousness and justice that I display, even when the wickedness may be around us, or the injustice is too much, and it is not going, there is no amount of work that's going to solve this. Even when life feels so mundane, that the things I do every day, I'm changing diapers. That what is my purpose? All of that, for God's people who are connected to Jesus by faith, it is all about Him and it is not in vain. The promises given to Abraham are ultimately about Jesus, but through Jesus, it is a promise to you and me that as we are connected with Him, that we are connected with a universal working of righteousness and justice that God is acting in the future. It's not just vague concepts. It's stuff that He is doing right now. So your purpose and your calling and your work is not in vain because this is the story of God working through people that is ultimately about the work of Jesus given for them. The conclusion is Jesus and the conclusion is a conclusion of hope. For you and me, no matter what we are going through, no matter what we understand and what we don't. So in the end, when we read passages like this and we see this, that these are invitations to learn and to know the way of the Lord. How God acts with His people when they're afraid, when they're waiting, when they feel like they have no hope, and when they don't feel like it's fair. It is an invitation to come in and know him better. And I just want to leave you with the phrase, and my dad likes to quote this all the time from this movie. We watch The Muppet Christmas Carol almost every movie, if you've seen it, about Ebenezer Scrooge, who his life has intervened by a few ghosts to learn a new way than the one that he was used to, that he thought crazy. Um, but he's visited by three spirits. But the, the spirit of Christmas present, where he's a big guy and he's very forgetful, He says this phrase over and over and over again. He looks at Scrooge and he says, Scrooge, come in and know me better, man. And that is what the whole story of God through Jesus is an invitation to us. That we would look at him wherever we are and be drawn further up and further in so that we would know him better, man. That's the hope of Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for the wonderful blessing of being called to join you in your work. But thank you especially for the provision of Jesus that the conclusion of the story is about him and it is not about us. That through your grace, you have included us 
and that you have made all those united to you successful and the inheritors a blessing because of him. I pray that you would, through your spirit, give the hope of the center of the story of Jesus to everyone in this room, wherever, wherever they are, and that we might go about the calling that you have called us to in confidence and humility and hope in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.